I'm David Wilcox is my name. Uh, I've been a professional musician for over 50 years, um, at first as an accompanist to other artists, and then started my own groups, uh, which has been going for a very long time. And uh, you're listening to Talking Blues. Through the grapevine, I heard that you might have played the trumpet at one point. Yes, I did. Not very well, but in high school, I played the trumpet. And uh, the main thing for me, Ron, well, first of all, I went to summer camp and met a guy who was light years ahead of me. He became a professional trumpet player. Nice guy, but, you know, but, but so he also played the guitar, and I was a bit ahead of him, so we got along well. He's a very nice man, but uh, um, he was so far ahead of me, and he didn't seem to practice much. And the other thing is, on the trumpet, if you make a mistake, it can sound funny, which isn't very good because if you start laughing, you can't keep playing. And so on the guitar, if you make a mistake and it's a funny one or you know anything, I think you can chuckle and uh, usually no problem. So the trumpet came after your guitar. Uh, well, yes. Um, uh, I was, you know, I tried a number of instruments as a teenager, and one of the advantages of it was that every instrument attacks a note slightly differently a saxophone, a trumpet, etc., etc., And it helped me later on very much as a vocalist. Interesting. Different ways a note could be started or ended and things like that. Um, what did your, did your love of singing, was that there from the very beginning? Yes, it was, although I focused mainly on the guitar. I, I sang backup when I played with Ian and Sylvia, um, and uh, uh, I, well, anyway, I, I was more focused on playing the guitar at, the, at first. And... I also heard that you, you you did a killer Robert Johnson type guitar playing, but what kind of stuff were you did you start off with playing the guitar? Um, well, I, I heard the fifties uh, radio guitar players of Scotty Moore with Elvis, um, uh, Chet Atkins was a big hero and is a big hero, um, and Buddy Holly and I think Tommy Alsop who plays on some of the Buddy Holly records. So those were my first uh, the first people who really turned me onto the sound of it. But ironically, I heard an Ian and Sylvia record when I was in my mid-teens that just killed me. Um, it's called Ella Speed, uh, sung by Sylvia. It's a lead belly song. And uh, the guitar was played by John Harold, and he plays brilliantly on it. And uh, that, that was when I really, it, it solidified, I just galvanized me. I just had to do that or try. Would it be corrected at that point that you thought, this is what I'm going to do? As a, I don't want to grow up and be a musician? That was, well, yeah, uh, pretty much. But I think when I saw Doc Watson a little later, um, and then B.B. King, those were the people who just really made a fantastic impression on me. I remember walking out of a coffee house in Yorkville after seeing Doc for the first time and thinking, I have to, you know, I mean, I didn't know you could do that with a wooden box with strings on it, you know, and it was so magical. So I, uh, I, I started playing more seriously then. And at that point, I know that you first started off in the folk scene. Yes. Can you talk about what that David Wilcox would have been like to see? Well, um, I started going around to open mics, and um, I gradually developed my appearance. You know, you'd get on for, they'd give you two or three songs or something like that. And uh, I started really working on it and doing tricks with the guitar and putting it up in the air and playing with one hand and all that stuff, you know. And uh, uh, I got to, to the point where I could finish my little, you know, two or three songs with my best song. 
you know, and then the uh, boss might come over and say, you can play another one, right? And then finally, I got to where I could finish with a good song and save the very best song for the after song. You know what I mean? They come back and play one more now, you know, and that would be my real killer showpiece, whatever it was at the time. And I said, boy, do I remember the first time the boss came over to me and said, if you come back on Friday night, I'll give you 20 bucks and play some songs. So, wow. Can you maybe recall what some of those best songs were? Um, well, let's see. Um, uh, there's a version on one of my records of um, When David Was a Shepherd Boy, uh, Play On Your Harp, Little David. Um, uh, one of those. Um, also, Aberdeen by Booker White. Booker oh, White okay. showed me how to play Aberdeen, which you drum on the guitar and uh, and you can flip it around and stuff. It, uh, you know, it usually got a pretty good reaction. So those were some of them, you know. Okay, so the question is, being a folk musician in the folk scene, mm -hmm. Um, how did you get the Telecaster? How did you become electric? Okay. I was very prejudiced against electric guitars. I was a real snob, and I thought it took no talent to play one, right? <laughs> okay. So a friend of mine on the folk scene named Doug Bush um, uh, had a pawn ticket on a Telecaster, and uh, he, w he wanted to sell it to somebody. Um, so I scraped up a hundred bucks, I think, or something like that, and got this pawn ticket and paid what was ever, whatever was owing on the Telecaster, right? And so I had an electric guitar and I got a cheap little amp in my basement, which Leon Redbone played through at one point. And I'd sure like to have a photograph of Leon playing a Telecaster, but I saw it myself. Anyway, so um, that was my electric guitar. And I wasn't that interested in it, but I did play it. I was mainly playing acoustic a lot, skipping a lot of school, I'm listening to Blind Lemon, Robert Johnson, and, and Blind Blake killed me, you know, and uh, uh, trying to learn that above all else. Okay, you, you mentioned Leon Redbone. Um, I, because of the documentary I worked on, and you were kind enough to answer a few questions about Leon, I kind of associate you with him in that time period. Mm -hmm. The other name that came up was Rafi. And I don't know if you played with Rafi a lot? No, um, I knew Rafi, and he was a very nice man. And uh, a bunch of us, there was a music store on Young Street, the Mill Wheel. And Rafi, I think, lived above it. I'm not sure, but he certainly spent time there, and so did I. And there was just we were part of the same circle there. But okay. I never played with him. Oh, okay. Um, so now you get this Telecaster. Would it be... Would it be fair to say if that friend of yours had a Stratocaster that you might be a Strat player today? Um, probably not, because I did buy a Strat after okay. that and play that for several years. So I've sort of been, you know, attracted to whatever guitar felt right in the moment, but generally Fender solid bodies. So you, you start to play the electric. How are you feeling about electric guitar players at this point? Still thinking, I'm real snob, playing <laughs> acoustic 90% of the time, right? And then, I'll tell you what happened, um, I heard um, uh, that Ian and Sylvia, um, well, well, they had the great speckled bird by then, and Amos Garrett was leaving. All right, so there's no way that I'm going to replace Amos Garrett in the great speckled bird, but I knew that if I didn't take a crack at it, I'd regret it the rest of my life. You know, if I didn't at least speak up and say, give me a chance. But that's pretty courageous. Well, thank you. Uh, thanks. <laughs> I no, think. I'm serious. I mean, thank you. And so I, I knew somebody at a music store who had Ian Tyson's phone number, and I bugged him and bugged him until he gave it to me. And I phoned Ian, and I said, uh, you know, please give me an audition. And he said, well, why? You know, you you've, haven't worked at anything at our level. And he was quite skeptical. And I said, what have you got to lose? 
And so he let me come over to the house and I auditioned and I got the job. Okay, so what? how do you think, what is it about you that got you the da- da- job, you think? Well, I've speculated about that a number of times over the years because I don't understand it. But I think probably the fact that I didn't showboat and I tried to phrase around the voice. You know, I didn't step on him when he was singing. And that's really important. And that was just, I, I, was, I had fairly good phrasing already, you know. And how did you know not to step all over him? Just my natural sensibility as a musician, you know, uh, what feels sounds good. Right. Know? But, you know, in other interviews that I've heard you talk about where you were musically at 21, mm-hmm. I mean, it didn't sound like you were totally confident about your capabilities. <laughs> and even no. when you talk about no, making no. This, doing this audition, you, it was just a real long shot. Yes, extremely. So, and so when he said, uh, maybe you can join the band, what, how did you feel? Um, it was still, to this day, many years later, it's still one of the most amazing experiences I've ever had in my life. You know, to go from being a kid in North Toronto who's playing in his mother's basement, has dropped out of school, is not an athlete, was a terrible scholar. I mean, that's an insult to the word scholar. You know, to all of a sudden uh, doing what I was doing. And uh, I I hope you don't mind. I'll mention I should have an Oscar. Because I, um, uh, the most money I'd ever made was playing electric bass in a band when I was 17, a pickup band with fake ID in a bar for a week, right? I made a hundred bucks. Um, and uh, 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 Ian, we stood on the steps of the house after the audition and he said, well, if you get the job, and this is in July, um, you'll make uh, about $8,000 between now and Christmas. Is that okay? <laughs> and I said, yes. <laughs> Or something like that. I said, yes, you know, what am I going to do, you know? But, I mean, I bought my mom a fridge for Christmas. Uh, You know, it was sort of announcing to the family I've arrived. I mean, I hadn't arrived, but I, you know. So I'm curious that that little kid who was practicing in your mother's basement, what did your mother think about your pursuit of music? Um, Well, she didn't like, she liked music. And and, and she, okay, here's the thing about my mother, who was somewhat of a tortured soul, single mom. Um, uh, and raised two kids as a writer for television, wow. right? Okay. Um, she would get on me very, very uh, intently about being a good student because she hadn't been able to go to university because partly the war of World War II, but also because she was a girl. Her mother wouldn't agree to let her go to university, you know, and so she did, never did. She audited classes later in life. But anyway, so my mother told, you know, was on me to be a star student you know, in life's lottery, you know, somebody said they wanted Einstein and they got Frankenstein, you know. (laughs) So, okay. So, but she bought me guitars and tape machines and by the power of example, following her passion was louder than any words she could have said. Wow. Um, That's wonderful. I mean, she was encouraging. Yes, she was. When she, when you got the gig with Ian Tyson, how did she react to that? They didn't say much, but I was raised by her and her parents who were very cultured European people who never fully adapted to Canada. They came over later in their lives and they were great people, but 
they, um, uh, they, their English wasn't great. And, you know, uh, so uh, they, the one <laughs> overwhelming, and these are people who had seen the great concert artists of the first half of the 20th century, I mean, you know, uh, Vienna and so forth. Um, the one thing that really made a ringing impression was he's on TV. He must be good. He's on, now I was on for like a, a second and a half every week playing a little turnaround or something. But uh, the fact that I was on TV, you know, really made a deep impression. It said, you know, something to them. Which is a huge point because when you audition, I guess you knew that you auditioned not only for a band that will play concerts, but that would appear on TV on a weekly basis. Yes. What did that do for you in terms of getting that kind of exposure now, even if it's, you know, a few seconds every week, but also you're not just in a, a, a famous band that, that plays a lot, but now you're seen nationally on TV. Well, um, I'm going to the bank and there's a kind of cute teller there. And I start along with my deposits. I start passing her little poems, you know, <laughs> little, you know. <laughs> and, and things like that. Nothing too, you know, risque or anything. But anyway, so finally she said to me, are you uh, on television? <laughs> you know, and, and I took her for lunch. You know, so it opened a lot of doors that way. Um, it gave me a swelled head, uh, too. I mean, I had a real attitude, you know, because um, I'd never experienced anything like that before. But it was a very um, a steep hill to climb. Because Amos is a great guitarist, a great artist, and to fill his, well, I didn't fill his shoes, but uh, to go and, and play where he had played was very, very uh, challenging. And I used to wish there'd be another guitar player in the band to tell me what to play. And then what happened next was um, our steel player left, Buddy Cage, and um, Ian started hiring uh, Ben Keith who became Neil Young's band leader years later and who played on I Fall to Pieces by Patsy Cline. Um, I mean, a, a dozens of famous records, right? And, and was a fabulous musician. I mean, great tone, great phrasing, great ideas, just brilliant. In those days, the guitar and the pedal steel would split the solos. So eight bars of me with my little dinky Telecaster with the pickups that were, I think, burning out. And now that I, I didn't know that then, but very, you know, sort of thin tone. And, and, and Ben with this luxuriant, brilliant, confident uh, sound, you know, or you get the reverse, Ben and then me. So that was, I mean, very, very hard to do, very challenging. But when I talk to musicians, they always talk about surround yourself with people who are better than you, and you get better, right? <laughs> Life did that for me. I had no problem. I was the youngest guy in the band, and they were all Americans, you know, and, and had played with some, fan, you know, Bob Dylan, people like that. And uh, uh, that was, wow, it was a wonderful education. Can I, speaking of education, like, can you maybe talk about what you might have learned through that experience of being a musician? Well, um, okay, uh, basic things, just how to behave in certain circumstances. And like any job, there's a sort of a, 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 an unwritten behavior code. So I learned a lot of that. And um, uh, just well, where, how and when to play and what to play, more or less. By the end of it, I played with Ian and Sylvia two, for two and a half years. And I can say by the end of the two and a half years, I was a pretty good guitar player for them. And is that, do you get better just from observing or are you woodshedding every night after practice? In the bathroom on the road so I wouldn't disturb people. I mean, I'd go in there and, you know, and work. And, and I took a, a tape machine with me and Merle, Tra Merle Travis records, all kinds of records, just to listen and to learn. So, no, I worked hard. 
And so that would have also been your first experience in the studio. I think you recorded two albums with... I did. My very first experience was uh, with a singer-songwriter singer named Dave Bradstreet a couple of years earlier. So I did go into the studio, and with the Telecaster too, but uh, really um, uh, my first major recording experience of any kind was with Ian and Sylvia. And they brought in the number one country rhythm section in the world at that time, Kenny Buttry on drums and Norbert Putnam, the bass player, who, uh, you know, had worked with, you name it, you know, I mean, there were uh, these American guys, and they were very, I was terrified, and they were so kind to me. Uh, Norbert and Kenny, especially Norbert, you know, uh, because they could just see I was just quaking in my boots, you know. But they could have just as easily brought in a guitar player too, right? And they didn't. Yeah, so that yeah. must speak to how good you were. Well, and, and loyalty on their part. I think they were quite loyal to me because, uh, I mean, I made mistakes. I, I did embarrassing stuff on the road, said stupid things. You know, I mean, I was a baby, you know, and they tolerated me and, and, and they kept me on. And, and, and I never, I, I mean, I, when I left, I did it voluntarily, which is a wonderful thing. And, and the lessons that you learned, was it spoken to you that Ian might come to you and say, you should do this? Or was yeah. it just observing what people were doing that made you think I should do that? A combination of both. Sometimes they said, don't play so much over here, or you're playing too loud, or whatever. And I was, you know. Uh, so, a combination. So, musically, where would you have been on your own at that point? Like, playing with Ian and Sylvia would be one thing, and that's that was your job. But in the off hours, was you playing, were you doing country and folk music, or what, what were you playing outside of the band? A lot of blues. A lot of acoustic blues from the 1920s and 30s. Um, that was my real passion. I liked country music, um, but uh, when Ian and Sylvia hired me, I only I had one Buck Owens record, um, and I, I practiced with that before I went to the audition. But really, most of what I listened to was acoustic and some electric blues. So how, and so forth. how different would have been the country playing, like to to support Ian and Sylvia, and maybe country's not the only thing, but from what you were used to playing, how different was that? Well, it was very different, but uh, I think I, I, I picked it up fairly well, and I also really liked James Burton, who played on, of course, many country and, and pop records, and uh, I got to tell him that, too. Oh, wow. Because uh, se several years ago, um, I did a, a festival out in B.C. with James Burton, um, uh, Albert Lee, Amos, who I played with before, and myself at a rhythm section. And so um, uh, I got to say to him quietly after our first rehearsal, you know, uh, I, I, uh, when I, I didn't get a job on the electric guitar until I was 21, and I, I copied you as much as possible. <laughs> and true James Burton, he didn't say anything. He, he, I mean, he's a very nice guy, but a very quiet guy, one of the most serious people I've ever met. Great, enormous gravitas. So at one point you decide you would leave Ian Sylvia. Um, at that point, what are you thinking that you want to do? I think you continued doing some sideman roles and playing for people like Maria Moldar and various people. Paul Butterfield, I think. Um, are you think a, a soundtrack with Paul. Yeah, okay, I so did. but are you thinking, I want to continue being a sideman or I want to go out on my own? I thought I'll, I would be a sideman and, 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 and a side person. And, and, and um, I... Uh, 
Well, I wanted to develop my skills that way. I, I didn't have any confidence in myself as a lead singer or as a band leader or anything like that. And I'd seen enough people start a band and have it die a week later, you know, or two weeks later. And I thought, you know, uh, uh, why would I do that? Um, so my, my, what happened with Ian and Sylvia was I started turning the guitar up um, and discovering that an electric guitar behaves differently at a higher volume and liking it. You know, and <laughs> it, it annoyed Ian a couple of times. But the thing is, um, it uh, I wanted to experiment more. And I got into a really loose kind of hippy-dippy band. Uh, sorry, guys, if you hear this. Um, uh, called the Rhythm Rockets. And we were very, there was a lot of anarchy. I mean, we ordered pizzas from the stage during the show. We told the club owner to fire us. I mean, when we were very poor financially, you know. But I got to solo a lot more, which I wanted to do. I got to um, just experiment a lot more. And uh, uh, that was part of my development, you know. Okay, so this is around the time, like, would you have met Morgan Davis in the Rhythm Rockets? Or was that the band after? No, before. Okay. I met him. Um, we were just talking about a place called Rochdale uh, with somebody. And, and uh, I met Morgan when he was a rent officer at Rochdale. I never lived there, but I went there a lot uh, for business transactions. <laughs> yes. You know, and uh, <laughs> consequently, uh, consequently we, we became good friends, you know. Yeah, and we still are to this day. So somebody was telling me that you were in a band. I don't know if it was a band or if it was just an evening of you, um, Colin Linden, and... Morgan Davis on stage together. And I, I just think... Very probably. Um, I mean, I know, and Colin will affirm this, I think, that, that um, I talked him into quitting school um, to join <laughs> my band uh, when he was like 17 or younger, I think. Uh, anyway, uh, Colin quit school and joined my band, and we went on the road, and he was the rhythm guitar player. I mean, he soloed too, you know. But that's, that's quite a lineup. I mean, there's three amazing guitar players. Well, you know, I mean, one thing about uh, Colin and especially Morgan, too, um, is they, they stay out of your... If people know how to stay out of each other's way, it's one of the reasons I really enjoy playing with Amos. We sound very, very different, and we don't step on each other's toes. There's no contest, you know. It's, it's kind of neat that you wound up playing with them um, and recording with them after many years of... I mean, after you had replaced them in your first major gig. Mm -hmm. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Well, I think he had a part in getting me into the Maria Muldor band, which is where we played together, um, you know, and he would play the uh, pop and jazz solos and I would play the uh, rock and uh, blues solos, you know. I wonder which of the musicians that you worked with after leaving Ian um, that you kind of modeled yourself after for being a band leader? Well, what happened was um, I started, um, I, I was married by then, and, and my, my first wife um, encouraged me to go out and, and be a front person, which isn't really in my personality, or it wasn't at the time, you know, which is all odd because I've done it for many years now. But um, she encouraged me, and at the same time, Morgan was tired of being a band leader. And he said to me, I'll give you my lights and maybe I paid something on, on time, and I'll tell you what to do in terms of like how you book the band with clubs and stuff like that, if I can play in your band. So that was the universe opening a major door, because I had a coach, and the coach was Morgan Davis in the beginning. But he was going to work for you. Yeah. Wow. But I mean, he sang some leads, yeah, yeah. he played lots of leads, you know, so we sort of shared it, but it was my band in, on paper, and, um, and he never intruded on that, uh, whatever... 
dynamic, but he was great. He, he really helped me. And I mean, it was like the life opening the door that I thought I couldn't open or be open, have opened. I don't know if you can answer this, but was there a lesson that you learned from him? That, that... Oh, lots of them, um, especially about how to have a band, um, uh, you know, and as a musician too, he's very tasteful. He doesn't, play, he never play, think about Morgan, he never plays too many notes. Right. Is this the Teddy Bears or is this another band? Uh, the first band was called the David Wilcox Band. Okay. And then the Teddy Bears came after that. And in, in the Teddy Bears, is that when you took on the persona of the remote gambler? Uh, <laughs> I guess you could call it that. Um, my, uh, again, my ex-wife um, was uh, adamant that I had to have some visual um, uh, representation that set it apart from other bands. Don't forget, we're going into bars. They've never heard of us. They've never heard us. They've never heard our material. Um, and uh, I mean, we were playing Benny Goodman instrumentals, acapella gospel, all kinds of stuff. And so this ha there has to be something where I saw this guy who has a handlebar mustache and a long white coat and a carnation or something like that, some identifying feature. And she was absolutely right. And, and I, I put that on and uh, um, uh, that helped. I mean, that was part of the original image. But by the time that you released your first album, that image was gone. Oh, yeah. It became a trap, like most oh, okay. images do, you know. And so I shaved the mustache off, much to the consternation of our little cult fans or whatever they were. You know, there were people who really didn't like it. But I shaved the mustache off and then uh, cut my hair. And yeah, it, 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 I was more pretty much through with that by then. So I get the impression from speaking to people who saw you back then that you, you had mentioned Benny Goodman instrumentals and acapella mm -hmm. material um, and, and that you were musically, as it was said to me, um, it was a musical soup yes. that, that you presented. Um, and that, that there was a lot of, I don't know if it's shtick is the right word, but there oh, was a lot yeah, of... Oh, hell yeah. I, I used to raffle off a, a set of invisible dishes to an audience member and then be unable to find the prize. Uh, you know, I mean, all kinds of things and silliness and, you know, uh, because I wanted to keep them entertained. It was very hard. It's hard to hold an audience if they've never heard of you and, and they paid a dollar to get in. I mean, they think, well, you know, what is this guy, you know? <laughs> okay, so what changed? Because I see you in the last number of years that I've seen you, you, you don't talk a lot on stage. No. Um, you, your music, I mean, now it's your music, but you don't do Benny Goodman instrumentals, um, acapella. Well, maybe you do acapella, but... No. But it, it, the, the musical genre, the musical soup has gotten more narrow, as not as wide as it, it was presented to me uh, that you did back in the 70s and 80s. So how did that change? Well, okay, I may beg to differ with you on the when you speak of width. Okay. It has, has, has transformed and perhaps has become a, a roux, as in a gumbo, um, rather than a soup. But, um, I mean, we use whole tone scales. Um, I made one of the only commercially released ragtime records in the late 80s. Um, uh, at that time, I think. So there's still a pretty broad spectrum of styles. There's country, you know, different things and rock. Um, but what changed basically can be summed up in two words, records and airplay. Okay, so can you elaborate on that? Of course. Um, I made a record, finally, okay, nobody was signing us because it was disco time, right? So in 1978, um, we found an investor 
um, a man who had a music store and said, you know, if you give us this amount of money, we'll make a record and give you some of the, you know, share the money. And so we did that. Um, but the only problem was I couldn't get the record released for two years. I shopped it around. I looked. I looked. We had this, and that's the record um, that had, I mean, hypnotizing boogie, bad apple, hot hot papa. I mean, uh, a lot of the songs that people ask for now, you know, on it. But I couldn't get it released. And finally, a small independent label decided to take a chance on it, and they released it, and it sold fairly well. I think twenty-five thousand copies or something for a new artist, um, and that, uh, well. I'll go ahead a bit. Um, uh, the label failed. Um, they couldn't pay any of their other artists. and uh, Well, they couldn't pay me. And uh, other artists got color covers with our <laughs> money. We got a black and white cover. And, and they, when, when the time came for the royalties, uh, they couldn't pony up. And so, but although later on, um, the man who owned it settled with me. So I have no resentment or anything like that there. But we made a deal and he settled it and, and he walked away honorably. But, but um, what happened was it showed major labels that we could sell some records. And so then I got signed around 1983. Okay, so recorded it in 78, got released it I think in 1980 around there. And, and uh, in 73 got signed by EMI or Capital. In 83. Then. Yeah, I think in 83, around there. Um, but what really, there was a night, okay. So I'm playing bars, playing bars, and uh, some of them are really ratty and getting fired and booed and stuff, not all the time, you know, but definitely some of the time, you know, and, and, and really uh, once or twice almost getting beaten up by the audience because they uh, really, we, we weren't playing uh, Led Zeppelin or Maggie Mae by Rod Stewart or the stuff they came to hear. You know, we're playing something totally different, original songs and uh, a few covers. So, okay, now playing these bars, and we got a gig in a small town, and by this time the record, the first record's out, and it's getting a little airplay, I've heard. So, get a gig in a small town, and um, either Elmvale or Elmdale, Ontario, I think, something like that. Anyway, so a place I'd never been before. We go, it's a Friday night, we pull up to the bar, and it's full, and that's a bad sign, because um, that must be their regular drinking venue. You know, and I thought, oh, oh, you know, I hope we don't get hurt, you know, and maybe we'll get fired or maybe not. Uh, you know, I'm going to try and win them over, you know, and that. Um, so we go in and they knew the words to the songs. What? Records and airplay. It was the night that it really turned around. Oh, this is <laughs> that's it. This now, is which, which pressing is that? Do you mind if I look at the back here? All right, um, that is the original pressing, uh, which is apparently better than the other one. <laughs> but that's that's it. Yeah, that's that's uh, Freedom Records. Yeah, so that's my first record. Yeah, it was kind of risky to do an album in late '70s, '77, '78, when disco was the thing. Correct. Like, yes, it was. So it you was. were kind of competing against what was trending, um, which might have been the reason why you couldn't get any buyers at that point. I presume that you believed in this, and, and rightly so, enough that you held on to it for three years and then you, you wound up getting a deal and it, it started getting airplay. Did you always have that confidence in this material? Um, no, but um, what happened with Ian and Sylvia, and it was a major power in my life, um, uh, I got some affirmations from famous musicians. 
they'd come and see the show and they'd tell me something positive. And I mean, if so-and-so thinks I'm okay, then I must be pretty okay, you know. And then I had a magical night at Carnegie Hall. We went to New York, we played Carnegie Hall, um, and uh, uh, I, it was either with just me and Ian on acoustic guitars, or we might have had a bass player, okay. And um, I had a really good night. Um, Ian, thank you Ian, uh, introduced me twice and got a big round of applause both times, and people started applauding my solos. And I, afterwards I thought, you know, if I can go over okay, because I mean, it was Ian and Sylvia's show, if I say if I, you know, if, but in, in the context of Ian and Sylvia's show, if I can go over okay at Carnegie Hall, maybe there's, I can have a career in this music thing. Did you ever consider anything else? Was there any other oh, option? I, lip service, you know, becoming a psychologist or something. I mean, you know, psychologists are wonderful, but for me to be one would be... <laughs> you know, not okay. So uh, I, I could never, not in my heart, in my head I did, but not in my heart. So now this album comes out and all of a sudden there's like three singles. Mm -hmm. It does quite well. It is some of the material, as you said, that you still play and people request. Mm -hmm. What does that do to you? Oh, it was a wonderful affirmation and it made life a lot easier because um, I wasn't so afraid of, well, violence on the part of the audience um, and getting fired as much. Um, so it opened a lot of doors and it gave us credit. There are a lot of people, and I don't blame them for this, who, if a musician is not on the radio, he or she can't be any good. And if they are on the radio, they must be good. Now, I don't think like that and you don't think like that, but uh, there are people who do. And so it, it helped enormously. What does it do for your ego? Well, um, it puffed it up, but I had already had the Ian and Sylvia experience and had some deflation with that. And uh, um, it, it made me uncomfortable because, uh, uh, you know, people would say things like, uh, I, you know, would walk up to me and say, I've never heard of you. <laughs> and so <laughs> I felt like saying, I've never heard of you either. You know, like I, was, I wasn't really trying to be famous. I was trying to have a career playing music that I liked, you know, which is a slightly different thing. And, and, but I presume fame, some, some sort of fame came along with that. Oh, hell yeah. You know, and it, um, uh, I mean, I was in a crowded theater lineup outside a movie theater and somebody came to the side door and said, Sst, come over here. <laughs> And took us in the side, let us buy popcorn and find seats before, you know, I mean, that part is great. But it's very, it's a very serious liar, any kind of celebrity or fame. And uh, like you, uh, I'm sure, I've met one or two uh, really famous people. And um, some of them are happy and some of them are unhappy. You know, it's no guarantee of anything. And when you're alone at night or you sit down to meditate or whatever you like to do, it doesn't mean much, does it? Does it create pressure? So you have success on your first album, three hit singles. Now you have to do your second album. Mm -hmm. Is there pressure to meet that? Or in your mind, is there internal pressure? Or do oh, you not yeah. think that way? Well, the big labels, the old record companies, you know, um, they, they, were, they, were very, they put a lot of pressure on you. But I discovered something wonderful early on that, they, they, okay, they'd have ideas what you should do you know put up a sign because the so. first album you had done on your own so yeah they yeah had... no art no artistic supervision at all right. the producer and i basically uh, you know and the engineer 
Uh, we just played what we wanted to, what we were doing in the clubs, three-minute versions. Um, the second album and, and afterward, um, the record company would have an idea, like put a bassoon solo on every song or wear purple clothing all the time or take your teeth out or, you know, whatever the idea was, some insane bad idea. And I soon discovered that if I said no, the egos got into it and they had to try to force me to do it. But if I said, let me think about it. <laughs> they were so restless, a week later they'd be on some other artist with some other dumb idea, you know. So uh, I, I, it was a, a negotiate, a navigation, you know, the uh, record company. I, I wonder, like oftentimes when I talk to musicians who have had hit records, some people will talk about the business of music, the big machine, that the, the, the song was good, but it's, it was a hit because of the money or whatever else that was poured into it to make it a hit. In, in this case, on your first album, I mean, this was, I don't know if there was money put into it, but I mean, obviously you had recorded it three years prior and it was, the record company didn't force you to do that and then you, they got a hit record or a few hit records out of the deal. Um, was that pressure always still, like, wouldn't you come in with the second album saying, well, I kind of know what I'm doing you know, as opposed to having to deal with their pressure? Um, I was very lucky to be with EMI, and they had a man named Dean Cameron, who I think was a, um, a real hero in some ways, um, who I dealt with. And Dean left us a lot of artistic leeway. You know, he would have, you know, he'd watch what we were doing, but um, he was better than most of them, a lot better than most of them, you know. Um, so I just... Uh, uh, you know, we'd work up some songs and go and record. Did you feel like the record company knew better? Like, I always I always wonder about that concept of record company saying, no, no, this isn't a hit, you should do this, or you should play bassoon, or whatever, as if they know. And I don't know if they really know as much as the musicians know. Well, let me tell you what I think, please, um, uh, is the great tragedy of the record companies. Um, I mean, they're basically gone now, or they have no power, very little power. They're simply licensing units from past material, you know, uh, to, to streaming services. Um, the, the great tragedy was that there were wonderful artists who didn't get signed. There were superb singers and songwriters who were way better than 80% of the people who did get signed. And they, they didn't have a chance the same way I did. They might have had a career, but it would be a much, much smaller career than they would have had had they had some airplay, the things that I got. So with the success they had so early, um, do you have negative things to say about the music industry? Like, has, has most of your dealings with the business of music been a positive thing? Okay, two answers to that, if I may. First of all, I'm one of the lucky ones. Do you, do you think it's luck? Because well, okay, maybe not luck. I mean, there's there's certainly an element of skill and navigation uh, a, a, a about it. But the fact is that I, of course I've been ripped off, but nothing like some of the people who wrote major hit songs, international hit songs, who didn't get a cent. I mean, the classic example is um, Solomon Linda and the Evening Birds. Do you know that one? Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. Well, I mean, here's a man who wrote something that uh, they, they figure his family was ripped off for about 15 million U.S. Um, uh, the, the Lion Sleeps Tonight, you know, which he wrote in 1939, you know, um, in Swahili, I think. But, but uh, anyway, or maybe Zulu. Anyway, um, the point is that I have been ripped off, but not a shadow of what other people have suffered on that basis. 
The other thing is I have a theory that, um, and I'm serious, that music is such a sacred, powerful, spiritual force. It has to be surrounded by enormous ugliness and darkness just to exist in this world, you know? <laughs> okay. And so it is very corrupt. It's very dirty. I like Hunter Thompson's description. The music business is a dark plastic hallway full of pimps and thieves, but there's also a dark side. <laughs> Um, did you ever feel wrong by a label? Oh, sure. But, I mean, in the context, overall, I mean, that was just what you had to do to get your music out. You know, I never felt, um, well, it's, that's a hard question to answer. So, yes, but um, it's a question of degree. When I saw what happened to other people, at least I had a label. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like your shoes don't fit. Well... But you've got shoes, <laughs> you know. <laughs> True. Now we're into the second, third album. Where are you musically? Like, how confident are you ab about your songwriting, your guitar playing, your singing? Well, more confident than I was. Um, I'd like to say a word about substance abuse. Because, um, uh, I mean, I went pretty heavily into the drug and alcohol world in those days. Is that related to... The fame or the success that you had, or no, it's related to the fact that I'm <laughs> an alcoholic and a drug addict, and I don't have any trouble saying that. I haven't had any of those things for many, many years. But the fact is that that impinged on um, my ability to choose, and I was still playing well, I think. And I mean, I never lost work specifically because of it, but um, I didn't sit down and think of directions to go in. Um, I took chances. Uh, letting other people make decisions and that some of which I don't like today when I hear records from that era You know um, it went in a direction that I'm not that happy with the first album the first couple of was very happy with and after that nah, It's tended to wander a bit, you know, I mean do you think it's an easy thing to I always think how difficult it is to actually record an album to have a song in mind to go in with a band record it and come out with something that you had imagined from the very beginning like it seems like a simple concept, but I can I can see how it's not that easy to go from the creation of the song to the final product. No, it's not. And also, um, uh, you might record exactly what you had envisioned, but when you've recorded it, it sounds and looks completely different. That's the nature of the magic of music. Right. right. And then, then there's also the current trends like synthesizers or drum machines, mm -hmm. that those things might have been all over the place and you think, oh, this is a good idea. They did it. And then you listen to it five years later and think, oh, God, that doesn't sound good. Well, that's a source of friction between, or was a source of friction between me and other people. Uh, because the thing is, I hate temporal records. And by that, I mean a record, when you hear syndromes, boo, boo, you know, you're listening to 1988, right? I mean, I hate that. You know, I like records that are somewhat timeless. You know, obviously they're not completely timeless. I mean, when I hear a Caruso record, I know it's, you know, but... Uh, uh, I like records more like that. Speaking of which, I know you have a musical taste that's really wide. Do you, do you have a love for opera? Yes. Um, specifically, um, uh, some of the singers. Um, uh, I, I, I don't go to the opera much, but uh, um, Caruso has been an enormous influence on me. Best crescendo of anybody on any instrument. 
And there's wonderful, now on, on, online on YouTube, um, there are um, uh, one or two things that are Caruso recordings uh, backed by a modern orchestra. They've been uh, electronically edited, and you can hear that, that he had something that I don't think any other singer of that genre has since. Luciano Pavarotti said, there are all other tenors, and then there is Caruso. You didn't have a desire to be an opera singer? Not in the least. Okay. I don't look good in tights. No. <laughs> um, getting back to this issue of substance abuse. Yes. At what point did you realize this was a problem? I mean, was there a point that you realized that it was oh, a problem? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, well, basically I realized how much I was lying to myself. All the classic lies that addicts tell. Anyway, go ahead. But but your playing wasn't affected by it. Oh, it was affected. But I mean, I think that um, it. Uh, well, okay. I went. I don't know if this is a, germane to the conversation or not. But I had a, a lot of debate with myself over the relationship between drinking and drugging and creativity, right? Which many artists have books on the subject, everything else. And what I eventually, I came to the conclusion that there are some people who can sing, write, dance, uh, paint better after a glass or two of wine or a joint or something like that. But I'm not one of them because I can't stop. So therefore, it deteriorates the quality of my creativity. And did you hit rock bottom or did you realize, ah, oh, this isn't good, I should just stop and turn myself around? Inside my soul and myself, I definitely hit rock bottom. I mean, I still had a place to live, and I was still playing gigs. But the idea of rock bottom is a, um, uh, it's a subtle term in a way, because some people think it means you wind up on the street with nothing. Well, I didn't do that, but I wound up as low as I'd want to go, you know? And how difficult was it to change? Because I often think people don't really change. But when you stop smoking, you stop drinking or whatever, I think that's a change. How difficult was that change for you? It was difficult, yes. But um, I, I reached out for every bit of help I could get. I mean, my doctor, um, I read books on it. Um, I talked to people. I did everything I could um, because uh, it was obvious that it, I was either going to hit the ditch well, I was already in the ditch, but I was already gonna, it was gonna stop or kill me, uh, or um, I was gonna, you know, stop drinking and using, and so. So, and one of the results of that is that you, I believe, help addicts and alcoholics. I do, yeah. I, I love doing that, you know, and the thing is, I have to say that a lot of the people that I drank and used with are dead, and, and some of them were younger than me, and not from overdoses or anything like that, but it's so debilitating. Now, let me also say that there are people who can responsibly drink, smoke pot, do whatever, um, and including the other drugs, whatever they choose, and not be harmed by it. Do it in a moderate way. I'm just not one of those people. So what do you get out of helping addicts? Well, it helps me have a sober day, clean day. You know, I, I, they remind me who I am. And musically, what did that change do for you? Like you said, some people feel that they can play better or more creative. When you stopped, how did that change who you are as a musician, or did it? I took several years off um, in the early 90s. I didn't play any concerts for about five years. And uh, um, I just learned, I, mean, I had to develop another way of living, and I did, you know. Um, and uh, it's, it's just better. I mean, it's, I'm, you know, it, I, I don't want to go on about it too much. Life is life. Life does its thing. 
you know, but uh, it's just better. Did, what did music mean to you during the time that you were off, not playing? Well, an, an enormous amount as a healing force. I mean, I listened to records a lot. And, uh, and did, I put a studio in my home. I had an apartment. And I put together a little recording studio and played with that, you know. Can we talk about your songwriting, which from the very, very beginning was quite creative. There's lots of humor. Mm -hmm. um, tell me about how that has changed over the years, the way you approach songwriting. Okay, the main change is that when I started writing songs, it was to play for people in a bar who had never seen me or us. Right, and so in other words, everybody's talking about a bump up ahead. You can and you can come in two thirds of the way through the song, and it's you know you can get the everybody's talking right. Okay, um, do the Bearcat similar, uh, hypnotizing boogie similar. When I started um, uh, getting airplay, um, I was able to write songs that unfolded from the beginning. So you had to listen from the beginning to get the full meaning and message of the song in a different way. You're playing? How did that affect, how was that affected? Um, it, well, I mean, it was better I, I, over time because my, I had to learn uh, the addict or the beast in me, uh, so it was, uh, there's a great song, um, uh, had to learn that it wasn't going to get a drink or a drug no matter how badly it wanted it. And even if I'd go on stage, I had nights when I'd go on stage and I'd decide not to drink or use. Okay, I'd go on, and I'd be gritting my teeth and playing poorly, and you know, in a miserable space, right? And I, and people around me would say that too, you know, gee, you're just not yourself or something. <laughs> so uh, I'd go off and think, well, if I just had a glass of wine or a joint or something, you know, I'd play better, and I would do that. I'd have the glass of wine or the joint, and now. Years later, I realized that if I decided in my subconscious that I had to wear my purple shoes to uh, play well, then I make that truth. It's not the, the truth. It's my little uh, fantasy. And so um, I had to get the message in my heart and my creativity that there wasn't going to be anything. And, and since then, I, I, I think I've played pretty much the best guitar I've played in my life. I believe that truthfully. Because I, I'm more selective. I don't play as many notes. And uh, just you learn how to go deeper, you know? I mean, I, I've had the pleasure of seeing you play a few times over the last few years. And I'm always mesmerized by when you, like the last time I saw you was at the Southside Shuffle. Mm. And you came on stage. And I don't know if you have a set list. I have a feeling no. you might not. No, we don't. So do you even discuss the first song? No. I like <laughs> to surprise them. And, and um, I, I don't know if you know my song, um, uh, I, uh, Downtown Came Uptown. Yes. Well, <laughs> the musicians were joking just at a rehearsal a day or two ago that whenever they hear somebody say, I used to wear, they snap to attention <laughs> because I used to wear jeans, <laughs> right? <And> so <laughs> if anybody says, I used to wear, they, <laughs> you know. Uh, so, no, uh, I don't tell them what we're going to play, and I don't know what we're going to play. I look at the audience and get a feel for it. And Fats Domino did this, too. I, I heard him in an interview talking about this. Um, just thinking about, while he's playing one song, thinking about what they might want to hear next, you know. I mean, I love the way you opened up that show at Southside, and it was like you basically start singing on your own first. I don't know the actual song title, but mm. it was just like, wow, that's like, it wasn't like the band kicked in at the very beginning. You started off, and then the band kicked in. Um, but I did get the sense that th there was um, immediacy, that you didn't have a set list, that 
that it just kicked into the next song, you gave them cues and whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the advantage of that? Well, um, it keeps it fresh. I mean, I've played the Bearcat many, many times. But if we don't know where it's going to go or exactly what the solos are going to be, you know, uh, it keeps it fresher for us. And uh, also, I think it makes for a better show because the audience might be in the mood for a slower song or maybe... And, and all, if the set list says fast, loud song, you know, you're stuck. So it keeps us more flexible. Okay, so the other question I have, I have issues with my eyes. I don't think you do, but every time I see you perform, somebody leads you onto the stage and some, I think somebody leads you off the stage. Very much so. Um, I try to go as deep as humanly possible. Um, I try to remember that somebody seeing the band that night will only see, well, me, but us once in their life. And what do we have to give them? Are we just going to go through the motions or play well? Or are we going to go as deep as we humanly can? So I try to do that, and I frequently forget the way off the stage by the end of the show. You know? So are you in like a trance-like state? You could call it that, you know? And does it start before you go on stage? Like I, like 10 minutes before stage time, are you into in the show already? And Very shortly before. You know, it's hard to talk about that. Uh, but I go, like I say, I go as deep as I can, you know. Because it's fascinating to see from, from an audience member to see Good. you holding somebody's shoulder. Yeah, yeah. To the well, stage. that's because, as I say, I, I forget the way off the stage. And so they guide me off. I can physically see, but I don't, uh, I don't know, I usually don't know where I am. And, and, or at least in that way, I don't know how to get off. So they guide me. With all the songs that you've written... And obviously, I would think that you would consider yourself a songwriter. Mm-hmm. Does songwriting still happen on a regular basis? Yes. How, how does that happen at this point? Well, one of the best uh, doors for songwriting is eavesdropping. I mean, Shakespeare was a playwright, but I think he was a great eavesdropper. Those scenes with uh, Falstaff and, and some other things that he, you know. Uh, and so um, a lot of my better songs have been something somebody said. You know, my first mother-in-law, uh, uh, I, I was talking, actually, I was talking about her and saying she thinks I'm a bad apple. Well, you know, or I heard laying pipe. Somebody used that expression. And uh, <laughs> all of it, you know, it's like a little ding. There could be a song there, you know. But as an artist at this point, and the music industry being what it is, do you still write in hopes of doing another album? Or is it just write because that's what you do? Well, I have a choice. One of the great things about my career is that I have a lot of choices now, you know. Um, and one of them is I might go in and record early next year. During COVID, we kept playing. Um, we'd get in a large, we had a large room in downtown Toronto. We practiced social distancing. And I'd every week, once or twice, I'd get together with a rhythm section. And uh, it was food for the soul, you know. So I heard this story that you do this, but it might not be the same rhythm section. No, um, I, I use different rhythm sections. Um, to, to keep a steady band going is if you're like the, the, if you're the, the lead person, uh, let's say front person, um, uh, is, can get very expensive um, if you're going to keep people in good circumstances. You, so you'd have to work most of the year now i've heard stories of stevie wonder's band being on like for an entire year being on retainer you know well the thing is that's great nice work if you can get it Mm -hmm. you know there's other artists like that too but i'm not at that level 
So um, it, it's be the best thing for me, and this way I get to pick and choose gigs. If it's a nice festival or something, you know, we want I want to play, then um, I can uh, you know say no to the stuff I wouldn't want to play, and we can stay in decent hotels, travel in decent circumstances, and so uh, it makes sense. But you just get different rhythm sections to work with you. And you still practice on a regular basis. Oh, yes. And also, I play differently with them, too. I learn, from, like, like, I'll play differently with a different bass player or drummer or combination. And so uh, it's, it keeps me stimulated, too. My final question to you. Mm -hmm. At this stage in your life and, and all that you've accomplished, do you still have goals, whether it be music or otherwise? The same goal I've had for many years is to go deeper, play better, communicate more, sing better. Um, and that's my goal, you know. And you will continue doing this until you can't. Yes. Uh, you know, uh, somebody told me recently um, uh, when I was eight years old, he was a, a guy I had known um, uh, through his sister told me, and I hadn't seen him in decades, but he said that when I was eight years old, I said, I'm going to be the best guitar player in the world. And the thing is, of course, there's no such thing, you know, but uh, uh, I, I, that's always been my desire to be a good musician, you know. I just want to show you something. Yeah, um, sure. Once again, another, oh, another one of Bruce's Oh, the CBC transcription thing. disc, yes, absolutely. Tell me about that disc. Tell you about that. Okay, um, that was when I was still in a very formative stage. Um, I got to do some recording for the CBC, um, and, uh, um, you know, my, the, the, my sound as an artist wasn't fully formed, I don't think. But, I mean, uh, there's, there's wonderful drumming on it. I got a great drummer from L.A., called Earl Palmer to come oh, up and, yeah wow. Earl Palmer's on this you know and one of the greatest drummers in history and uh, how did you manage that well he was in Maria's band oh right and okay. I knew if I got to make records ever as, as a front person I wanted to have excellent drumming so uh, that it was essential I don't think you can make a really good record without a good drummer if, if that's the kind of ensemble and so uh, we I think we he was given another name like somebody else's name was on the contract. We weren't supposed to bring in American musicians, oh, but yeah. brought in Earl, you know, and he played it. That's him. Wow. Um, as I said, this is a real honor for me. I've admired your music playing and, and your concerts for many years, and it's a real thrill for me to talk to you. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. Enjoy talking. Thank you.